Well, it would be great if you could keep that passage open as uh, we're going to be reflecting on that. Let's pray that God would help us as we sit here this morning and think about those words. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray for the work of your spirit through the pages of scripture and in our hearts. Speak to us, uh, encourage us or correct us as the case may be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently heard about the ABC television quiz program known as Hard Quiz. Now, the fact that I only recently heard of a quiz program which apparently has been on since 2016 tells you something about my TV viewing habits. But I've learnt uh, that the program Hard Quiz involves a fair bit of colourful banter between compare and contestants, and on it, the contestants have to answer questions personally on a special subject nominated by them, an area of their expertise, but also, secondly, on general knowledge questions. And at this point, it reminds me of a far more serious program I watched when I was growing up. That was the program Mastermind. Mastermind, which some of you may have seen, was a very serious program. It had a serious presenter asking serious questions of serious contestants on serious topics. And my serious family used to watch it every week and think it was great. And once again, uh, the contestants would come on, they'd have their area of expertise, their special subject, which they'd answer questions on, and then they'd also have to answer general knowledge questions uh, as well. A typical program might be as follows. There'd be a fairly bland setting. The, con uh, the, the, con the, the compare would sit down and say, uh, as the new contestant came out and sat in the chair, he'd say, your name? The contestant would say something like, Steve Young, the compare. Your special subject, he might say something like the effect of the Puritans on the Penrith Panthers rugby league team 19, uh, 2021 to 2023. Presenter, your time starts now. And then he'd give the first question and they'd go through it. And I wonder if you've ever watched Mastermind or Hard Quiz and you thought, how would I go on it? You know, But if so, you'd have to have a special subject, wouldn't you? You'd have to have an area of expertise. Now, what would your area of expertise be? What are you a specialist in? Now, you might think, I'm not an expert in anything. I don't have any area of expertise. Well, you are an expert on something. In fact, there is one topic upon which you are the world authority. You are the world expert on something, and that is you are the world authority on your life. And your expertise in this area if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, is one of your greatest assets in interesting other people in the Christian faith. Why is that? Well, because speaking about how God has impacted your life, often referred to as, you know, a testimony, that is almost always of interest to people and you are the world expert on the topic, should people wish to question you about it. Now, in today's passage, we see a great example of a lady giving her testimony. As you may know, uh, this January, we're looking at a five-week series in the Gospel of John entitled, I Testify. And today, we're looking at John 4, uh, 27 to 42. And we've called this week's uh, sermon, Come and See. And the verses recount that famous interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman 
at the well. We've, read, we've read, had read to us the second half of the passage. I'm going to refresh your memories uh, or summarise the first half shortly. But uh, an outline of where we're going to be going is set out on the sheet you hopefully received on the way in and is also on the screen. Firstly, I want to talk about the Samaritan woman's experience. Then I want to talk about the woman's testimony. And then thirdly, Jesus taking the opportunity to teach. And then fourthly and finally, the woman's impact. So that's where we're going. So firstly, the woman's experience, her encounter with Jesus. Well, most of it is initially set out in the verses earlier in the chapter, verses 4 through to 26, which weren't read to us. But I'm going to summarise what was in those verses because they provide the background we really need to understand our passage for today. So Jesus is travelling with his disciples. He's tired. He sits down in the middle of the day near a well just outside a Samaritan village while his followers, his disciples, go into the village to purchase food. And while Jesus is sitting by the well, a Samaritan lady comes out in the middle of the day to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, if you had uh, told people that in the first century in Israel, there would have been a gasp. There would have been a shark intake of air because that was a, a, an alarming thing for Jesus to have done. Why is Jesus asking a lady for a drink an alarming thing to do? Well, because Jesus is Jewish. He's a male and he's a respected teacher. The woman is Samaritan. She's obviously female. And we get the impression from the story a bit later that she was probably something of an outcast uh, as well. So, uh, firstly, in terms of the race issue, Jesus is Jewish, she's Samaritan. You may know that Jews and Samaritans did not get on. Jews viewed Samaritans as heretics uh, and the Samaritans had a similarly low view of the Jews. Secondly, uh, Jesus, the gender issue, Jesus was a Jewish male and Jewish men tended not to speak to women in public. That wasn't a done thing in the first century. And thirdly, Jewish is a religious teacher. And we get the impression that this lady was a bit of an outcast. And many people who aspired to be, you know, holy religious teachers in the first century would have avoided such people. So Jesus asking her for a drink is really quite a surprise. And the woman is surprised that Jesus asks for a drink. But then she's further surprised when Jesus makes her an engaging offer. He talks to her about living water and offers her living water. And this living water will mean she never thirsts again and this living water will well up into eternal life. So it's referring to Jesus as speaking metaphorically. He's referring to the fullness of life which God can give people, which he can offer people. And it affects this life and the next. But the woman, perhaps not surprisingly, isn't thinking metaphorically. He's thinking literally. She's thinking of literal water and she's thinking what's going on. Well, then uh, possibly to knock her out of her literal thinking mindset and perhaps to highlight the lady's need, Jesus then comes up with a fairly disturbing revelation. He reveals that he's aware in verse 18 that the woman has had five husbands and the man she now has is not her husband. Bang. How could he have possibly known that? Uh, the lady is surprised, uh, she would have been shocked, and it takes the conversation to a different level. She perceives that Jesus is more than what she initially thought, and she raises a spiritual question with him. 
Now, there's a bit of a discussion which then ensues. Uh, and then Jesus uh, makes a, uh, an ex- offers an exciting opportunity to this woman. And he says in verse 23, A time is coming and has now come where the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's talking about how we can have a relationship with God. We can worship God through uh, the gift of, of, of the Spirit. Now, uh, this woman has been through quite a journey. She starts the conversation with Jesus, uh, assuming she's speaking to a normal man. She then concludes that she's speaking to a prophet in verse 19. And by the start of this passage in verse 29, she wonders, could this be the Messiah? Man to prophet to Messiah. That's how the conversation has gone. So clearly, for Jesus, it's been a very spiritually fruitful conversation thus far she proves to have been a great person for him to have talked to but can i say that the samaritan woman if jesus's disciples had still been there they wouldn't she wouldn't have even been on their radar as someone to talk to about spiritual matters because she was samaritan probably she was a woman why on earth would you talk to her but clearly this lady was ready for this sort of discussion. The disciples would have missed it. Jesus doesn't. Which raises a good question for us. Are there people who were just not on our radar, who we come in contact with, who would be or could be open to spiritual discussion, but it just never occurs to us to do anything about it? You go to the service station, you probably have the same person serve you week after week, but it's never occurred to you. Uh, to perhaps say something spiritual in a conversation if the opportunity arose. The JWs come to your door and you think, oh, it's pointless talking to them. They've already been you know, drilled on what to say and they're not open to thinking about things themselves. Someone might think you don't take the opportunity, as I sadly didn't yesterday uh, and kicked myself a little bit afterwards. Uh, or that friend who just has never been interested. You've known them for 40 years, so why bother talking to them? Well, can I say, we should never say that someone is not the sort of person who could be interested in a spiritual conversation, who is not the sort of person who might become a follower of Jesus. Because in the first century, that Samaritan woman would have been viewed by many to be just that sort of person, but clearly she was up for a chat when engaged with in an appropriate way. Anyway, so there's the background. Let's now get to the passage which was read to us and look at the woman's testimony. Uh, in verses 28 to 30. Well, before we look at it, let me tell you about John Stott. Uh, John Stott in the 1970s wrote a book on evangelism. It was entitled, Our Guilty Silence. Interesting. And apparently in this book, he said there were four things that caused Christians to experience evangelism paralysis. Like the opportunity's there and then you say, Nothing. The four things he identifies are, one, people have no incentive, two, they don't know what to say, three, they don't think it's their job, fourth, they don't think it'll do any good. They're the four things which Stott identified. Well, this woman appears to have no such paralysis in this passage. Verse 28, at the end of the conversation, it says, then leaving her water jar, that's an interesting aside, isn't it? Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. She seems to have incentive. 
She seems to have initiative. Perhaps she had hope. And in terms of knowing what to say, she hadn't read a book. She hadn't done a course. She, had, she just basically went back and told about how Jesus had impacted her. And she probably only met him about an hour or two earlier. What did she do? She just talked about how God, how Jesus had impacted her. She spoke of her experience and then she raises her question, verse 29, could this be the Messiah? That's it. That's what she does. What sort of impact does she have? Verse 30, they, that's the people of the village, came out of the town and made their way towards him. That's Jesus. Why did she have such a big impact? Now, we don't really know why some people at some times appear to have a great interest in Jesus or in spiritual things, while other people at other times uh, don't have that sort of uh, apparent interest. But here, the villagers are very interested in coming to speak to Jesus. And one of the things is that I think they are just really interested in, in what has happened to this woman. You know, she was probably a bit of an outcast in the village. And here she is excitedly talking about someone. She's wondering she might be the Messiah. And it's clearly had a big impact on her and it's got their attention. Now, can I say that if you talk to someone about the impact of Jesus on your life, you may not have the entire suburb of Winmalee following you to church next Sunday. But some of them might, who knows? But I think we can usually assume that people are usually pretty interested in if you just basically relate how God has helped you or impacted you in some way. Now, I recently talked to a friend of mine uh, whose marriage uh, is not in a good way. And I just was chatting to him about how I felt that being a Christian and how Jesus helped me in my marriage in various ways. He was really interested, right? I was just talking a bit about, you know, the impact of Jesus on my life. He was really interested. I may have told this story before, but I was at a dinner party a few years ago with some friends of mine who for the last few years have shown very little interest in taking up opportunities to talk to me about the Christian faith. In fact, they seem quite disinterested in it, if the truth be known. But then uh, my wife at this dinner party uh, shared how God had helped her in a particularly uh, difficult family situation. Uh, and um, all of the people there, they had families and they were really interested in what she had to say. In fact, they were hanging on her every word. People, generally speaking, are interested in how God may have impacted you. So, uh, when we, I, I just like to encourage all of us to think about taking the opportunities which come our way, where we can just basically say, oh, this is how God has helped me, or this is how God has impacted me, or help, how he helped me get through that situation, or this is how I decided to become a Christian, or, or whatever it may be. But I guess I want to say, don't just take the opportunities, because opportunities will come. Don't suppress those opportunities when they come. Because often you'll be in a conversation and you could think to yourself, oh, I could say something about my faith here or how God's helped me here. Oh, no, I won't say anything now. A bit awkward. I'll, I'll, I'll say it some other time. You know, don't suppress the opportunities. Take them when they come. Well, the uh, lady goes back, tells the villagers they come out. And while that's taking place, uh, Jesus takes the opportunity to give a short teaching session with his followers in verses 31 to 38. I mean, the disciples have come back, verse 27, they're surprised to see Jesus talking to the woman at the well. At the well. 
But then um, they give him his food, and then Jesus starts to talk to the disciples about food. And he says in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So they've offered him food. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. His food, or God's, Jesus' food, is doing God's will. And in this situation, it's talking to this woman, it's talking about salvation, uh, it's being involved in God's mission. That's Jesus' real food. Now, Don Carson, a famous commentator, speaks on this, this passage, and he says that for Jesus, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in performing his Father's will than in any food the disciples could offer him. You know, food may be nice to eat, but doing God's will is much greater. Uh, I, I recently, on Saturday, Friday, I returned from a holiday in Jerangong with my family and some of my extended family. And for seven days there, I had seven different ice creams, a different flavour each day. I decided I wouldn't repeat the same flavour twice. And can I say, those ice creams were pretty satisfying. And food is pretty satisfying, isn't it? But my experience is also that uh, doing God's will, being involved in God's purposes in this world, particularly when that involves the opportunity to perhaps share something about our faith or the impact of God on our lives, that is, I find that far more satisfying than even a fresh croissant or, um, you know, a Ferrero Rocher cone or whatever. Jesus is saying that his food is to do the will of him who sent him. Now, um, back to the passage. We see here that Jesus is obviously very concerned with the mission uh, of the, uh, the good news of telling other people about what he offers them. Now, uh, whenever anyone gets up in church and gives a sermon or a talk which touches on evangelism, some people get bored and some people get nervous because they think, oh, he's going to, you know what he's going to tell me to do and I just don't feel like it and I've heard it before or whatever. Now, um, that's pretty normal. Can I, I was recently heard of, of someone who was once a barrister and went on to become a judge. So surely someone who's feeling pretty confident that he can speak publicly. He admitted that he found talking about his faith uh, challenging. Now, when we find talking about our faith or even just mentioning what God has done in our life, the thought of that horrifies us or finds us challenging, one of our responses is usually to think, I'll do that some other time. I'll do that later. Okay? Um, there's a story I heard uh, of three devils. This is not a real story. It's just an illustrative story. But three devils who are having a conversation about how they can minimise the effectiveness of some Christians. So the first devil says, I know what we'll do. Let's tell them that there's no hell. You can imagine that could impact someone. The second says, no, no, better than that. Let's tell them there's no heaven. Hmm, okay. The third one says, no, no, better still. Let's tell them there's no hurry. Yeah, Christianity is all true, but there's no need to rush. There's plenty of time just to get on with living as a Christian. No rush, no urgency about the mission, no urgency about telling others about what Jesus offers them. Now, Jesus uh, obviously clearly uh, speaks against that. Verses 35 and 36, he says to his disciples, don't you have a saying? It's four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who draws a wage and harvests the crop 
The one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. He's basically saying that now, when he was speaking, now is the time of spiritual abundance. As Jesus speaks here in John 4, there are people waiting to hear the message about Jesus. And by the end of the passage, we see many people in that Samaritan village are saved. There's a spiritual abundance ready there to be harvested. Our first reading from Amos talks about abundance as well. It's talking about that sort of, there are many people, now is the time. Well, are the fields fields ripe for harvest today in the 21st century? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. But it seems to be from human experience that some places appear to be more fruitful than others. So from my humble knowledge of world mission, mission work seems to be something of a hard slog in Japan. But in Iran, people seem to be becoming Christians all over the place. I read a report uh, put out by um, the Centre for the Study of Global Christianity. Uh, This is a report from 2022. And it notes that around the world, Christianity is growing in two areas, mainly Africa and Asia. The the harvest is abundant, obviously, there. It also noted, interestingly, that uh, there are fewer atheists in the world today than there were in 1970. That's interesting, isn't it? Apparently, atheism is on the decline around the world. So some places seem more fruitful than others. But then again, we shouldn't sort of think, oh, we're not in a fruitful area, because the disciples wouldn't have thought that Samaritan village was a fruitful area for ministry, but yet it was. So different places are different, but the harvest is still there today. Now, uh, in the passage here, uh, the message about Jesus, the good news, the message of salvation is spread via two means. The first one was via Jesus. Jesus speaks to the woman. He goes on to speak to the people in the village who come out to him. And you can bet he was pretty skilled in talking about the good news. He would have been really good at it. But the other way which the message spreads is via the testimony of the woman. who simply talked about the impact that Jesus had had on her, possibly with only one or two hours experience of having encountered Jesus. Now let's think about the woman's impact, uh, which is verses 39 to 42. She hadn't known Jesus long, probably a few hours. She probably hadn't had much education. I can almost guarantee she hadn't done a course on how to share her faith. She just went and told the people she knew the impact that Jesus had had on her. And that testimony led to some people directly Believing, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And her testimony also led to people's belief indirectly, verse 41. And because of this, that's referring to Jesus's words now, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves and we know that this man, Jesus, really is the saviour of the world. They've come to realise that Jesus is the saviour, not just for the Jews, but also for Samaritans. Jesus is the saviour for Jews and Gentiles, 
for all people in the world, every country on the planet. Now, let me conclude. Let me tell you why I think your testimony, that is just talking about how God has impacted your life, either helped you in a difficult time, helped you understand things better, given you the strength to get through something rather, as well as giving you confidence about your salvation and the like. Let me tell you why I think you're talking about what God has done in your life to others is especially powerful, particularly today. Let me give you a bit of background. Many of you will have heard the term Christian apologetics. Uh, if you go down to the Kurong bookstore, there's a section entitled Apologetics. It's Christian Apologetics. And traditionally, Christian apologetics has been understood to mean the defence of the claims to truth of the Christian faith. Okay? So uh, in the mid-20th century, someone might have said to someone, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of myths. Jesus didn't really exist. He didn't really live and die and rise from the dead. And you might think, ah... Oh, I need now to defend the truth. And so you could have, back then, um, amassed and relayed all the historical evidence for the reliability of the New Testament accounts of Jesus, evidence which tends to surprise most people still today. And so what you would have been doing is defending the truth of the Christian faith when it came under attack. Now, in the 1970s and 80s, which were my formative years, uh, Christianity was no longer the dominant way of thinking in my culture. Uh, Christianity was one in a marketplace of ideas in the Western world, right? There were people who thought this, people who thought that. Christianity was one such uh, set of beliefs. And so I think Christians needed to get a bit more proactive in the 70s and 80s and actually go out there and recommend the Christian faith to people. And so Christian apologetics became the presentation and defence of the claims to truth of the Christian faith, presenting as well as defending. In the early 90s, uh, there's a guy called Alastair McGrath, a famous uh, British uh, apologist who wrote a book called Bridge Building, which had quite a big impact, uh, and it was about apologetics. And he expanded the definition of apologetics as follows. He said the Christian apologetics is the presentation and defence of the claims to truth and relevance, he added in, and relevance of the Christian faith. You see, people were no longer simply concerned with whether it was true. In fact, some people mightn't have been overly concerned with whether it was true. They wanted to know, is this relevant to my life? By which they meant, um, you know, is it, does it seem to be practical? Uh, does it meet my perceived needs? Uh, does it seem emotionally appealing? or whatever. Now, of course, Christianity is relevant, but the task became to not just show that Christianity was true, but to highlight its relevance for people. Now, I think the world has moved on again since that very helpful definition from Alastair McGrath, because we now need to address a new situation, and that's the view amongst some people that Christianity is, in fact, harmful. Many perceive the Christian faith to be a danger to society in a number of areas, particularly race or gender or general enjoyment of life. And so I think the task of Christian apologetics is now to present and defend the claims to truth, relevance and goodness of the Christian faith. That is good. It's not harmful. Now, here's the thing why I'm mentioning all this. Sharing your testimony just telling about what God has done in your life in a helpful way 
addresses both questions of relevance and goodness. It addresses the relevance issue for that person who you're speaking to will think, oh, wow, actually, this impacts real life. It's affected this person in some positive way. It's relevant. And also, you'll be saying how it's had a good impact on you. So I'll be thinking, whatever they think of Christianity, wow, it seems to have had a good impact on them. Relevance and goodness, things which are particularly needed today, are directly addressed by just talking about the work of God in your life. Your testimony is powerful, particularly today. So my action plan for myself and you is that we should prayerfully look to talk to others, believers and non-believers, simply about how God is impacting our life. You can work out sensible ways to do that depending on the people you're speaking to and ways they understand. But let's not just look for opportunities, but when the opportunities are there, let's not repress them or suppress them or I think next week, next month, next year, once this relationship has been built a bit more or whatever. It's not telling us to be rude. It's not telling us to you know, force ourselves on people, but just in the same way that you talk about anything else, Talk about how God's impacted your life. Big idea, your testimony is powerful. Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would not hold ourselves back, but that we would politely seek to tell others about how you have positively impacted our lives. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities and provide us with opportunities and that we would simply tell others the good things you've done in our lives. And we do pray that you would use us to impact the world around us uh, for you and point them towards people towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.